Hello and welcome to the Milkshakes for Mali podcast. I'm Kate Fisher and I'm your host. I've written this podcast to give blood product recipients a platform to tell their stories, to thank donors and to encourage people to donate blood, plasma, platelets or breast milk. This podcast creates a space for blood product recipients and the people who love them to tell their stories of survival. It documents the remarkable lives they go on to live. These stories sometimes detail injury, illness and disability and always come with loved ones of recipients who feared that the people that they love the most may not see the light of another day. This pod takes you on a journey where you can share in the celebration of the amazing lives recipients go on to live, the contributions that they make to their communities and the joy that they bring to those around them. Anyone who has ever been a donor could have been the one that saved these people's lives and becoming a donor in the future means that you too could become a part of this story. As a sexual and reproductive health educator and sex therapist by trade, whose career has primarily been in developing public health policy for the federal government, I did not expect to find myself as an author and podcast host. But I also did not expect to leave my career to become the carer at the helm of an additional needs family. And certainly not as the mother of a little girl for whom plasma infusion is both life-saving when she relapses and life-preserving for every infusion in between. And today, I will tell you her story. Our daughter's name is Marley, and she is five years old. When she was three, she was diagnosed with seronegative autoimmune encephalitis and epilepsy, which for her is a refractory seizure disorder. What that mouthful means is that her immune system is wrongly identifying her healthy brain cells as foreign and attacking them. Her body literally attacks her brain. This results in brain inflammation and, among other deficits, prolonged seizure activity. In reality, what this means for our family is that her seizures can be anywhere from every few weeks to every few hours. They can last anywhere from a few seconds to her current record seizure, which lasted 39 hours. These prolonged seizures are referred to as status epilepticus seizures, and they are life-threatening. When Marley survives one of these episodes, it is often through admission to a paediatric intensive care unit. She is placed into an induced coma, intubated and ventilated. As these life-saving supports are slowly stepped down, we wait to see what damage has been done to her brain, not knowing if it's temporary or permanent, not knowing if she will be able to see, hear, walk, talk, or even recognise us ever again. But we are always just so grateful that she is still alive. Due to the autoimmune nature of her condition, Marley's seizures do not respond to anticonvulsant medications in the same way that someone with epilepsy may. What we have found that does control her condition is regular intravenous immunoglobulin infusion. IVIG, as we affectionately know it, is a solution of human plasma proteins with a broad spectrum of antibody activity. IVIG is prepared from large pools of human plasma collected from thousands of donors. I love so much that in a world of such incredible healthcare and scientific advances that for our daughter to survive this chronic illness, she also needs the kindness and love of the best type of humans, plasma donors. Those who donate as frequently as fortnightly with no clue that their blood product keeps our daughter alive. It keeps a little sister with her big brothers. It keeps her stable enough to go to ballet lessons once a week. 
it has given her the opportunity to blow out candles on two more birthday cakes than she would have otherwise seen without plasma donors. Before Marley became unwell, both my husband and I were blood donors. Not regularly, but a few times a year we would make the time to donate. We had no idea that we would one day be relying on plasma donors to keep our daughter alive. And when we imagined who our blood would go to, it was chemo patients, accident victims, maybe premature babies or victims of burns or for use during surgery. We had no idea the vast spectrum of people that will require blood products through their lifetime or how many babies receive breast milk through the milk bank. And while they may not know it today, most people will either themselves or have someone that they love rely on blood products in their lifetime. When you have a child with a chronic health condition, there are so many offers from people who feel so helpless and they ask, what can we do to help? For us, our answer is always the same. Please donate plasma and next time, try to take a friend. The name for this podcast is inspired by Marley's lifeblood team called Milkshakes for Marley. Marley has always had an obsession with strawberry milkshakes and, pre-COVID, volunteers at the lifeblood centres would always make milkshakes for donors. I created this lifeblood team in the 100-day lead-up to the first anniversary of her first airlift to a paediatric intensive care unit in a critical condition. During this time, doctors had prepared us for the reality that she may die. What saved her life was IVIG, generously donated by Australian plasma donors. In that 100-day lead-up to the first anniversary, we aimed to recruit 100 new plasma donors in 100 days in what became a truly national campaign with blood donors for all blood products across every single state and territory in Australia. We achieved this with a very modest social media campaign and simply by telling Marley's story. We've seen the impact of Marley's story and have had incredible offers from people both in and out of the public eye to tell their stories of being blood product recipients. And so this podcast was born as a platform to share these stories and to bridge the gap of anonymity between donors and recipients so they can hear from people whose lives they potentially saved. As we were working on this podcast episode, we were once again in another COVID lockdown mandated by the government not to go any further than our own mailbox. And even then, once the formal lockdown ends, attempting to make risk-calculated decisions about what limitations we need to place on our family in terms of community contact, as we just do the best that we can to have our immunocompromised daughter survive a global health pandemic, which brings with it a level of anxiety and fear that your nightmares can't even imagine. The first time that I knew true terror and fully understood that our life would never be the same again came in October 2019. Marley's first airlift, I was just in such a state of deep shock. Her second airlift made me realise that this was our new life now. I was in a helicopter accompanying Marley, who was being airlifted from the Canberra Hospital back to the Sydney Children's Hospital at Randwick. At that time, we were living in Canberra, which unbelievably has no paediatric intensive care facilities, which is not something that you even consider until it's something that you need. With no paediatric neurology team and Marley's condition worsening, the decision was made to airlift her to Sydney. She was in and out of status epilepticus and on a very slippery slope back to where she was at her sickest. Unable to last more than a few hours without seizure activity that left her unresponsive for up to six hours at a time. After how hard she fought when she was first diagnosed with autoimmune encephalitis, 
it appeared that she was experiencing her first acute relapse. And this is life-threatening. Our baby girl was in trouble again. Within 10 minutes of the helicopter taking off, Marley started to vomit. She then had a tonic-clonic seizure and started to desat in the air. Two rescue medications did nothing. She was unresponsive and being suctioned so that she didn't aspirate her own vomit. I was asked to decide on whether to administer a new medication called sodium valparate because you know her best. In a far from ideal situation, giving her a new medication in the air for the first time, I gave my consent with little other option other than to sit and speculate about what damage the seizure may be doing to her brain while we watched on. What other choice did we have? Our pilots were trying to get us to Sydney as quickly as possible, and that was when the turbulence started as we hit the smoke from the bushfires. I want you to imagine how scary it is being thrust around in the back of a helicopter with your unresponsive three-year-old and looking out the window to realise that visibility is poor because you are surrounded by smoke. Every decision that you make could impact the long-term ability, disability, life or otherwise of your precious child. Being the parent of a complex additional needs child always feels a bit like this. The constant feeling of survival mode. Constantly fighting and advocating while being tortured by sleep deprivation. And all the while making our little shit show of a life feel normal and happy and safe and grounded for all of our beautiful children. All of whom have additional needs. And next to my husband are the coolest people that I know. To say thank you and to explain to Australian plasma donors what they have done for Mali, I can only do that by explaining it in the context of our family. Every time I thank a plasma donor, I explain that it not only keeps Mali alive, but it also keeps a little sister with her big brothers and a daughter with her parents. It gives Mali's family, friends and supporters more time to be captivated by her beautiful blue eyes, her infectious love and zest for life and her passionate love of all things involving dogs. In particular, her seizure response service dog named Paddy. But more on him in the next episode. Mali's dad and my amazing husband Jeff will also join us later in the episode to give his take on what plasma donors have done for our family. But first... I will tell you the story of how our bonus baby Marley invited herself to join our family. She has a story that I feel only I can tell. I grew her in my body, I birthed her into this world, and I held her at my breast for over two years. She has spent all but a handful of nights of her life snuggled up on my chest, and those long nights where she was coding in status, all the time she was airlifted from Canberra to Sydney, and the long nights in the paediatric intensive care unit, where we honestly didn't think that we would be bringing her home. I held her little body and just willed her to hold on, promising the universe that no matter what the outlook was, that Jeff and I would spend every day committed to her. And each of those nights, I knew if she could just make it to sunrise, she had a chance of beating this thing. And here we are, still chipping away and still so bloody grateful that she is here with us now. The thing that many people don't know about Marley is that she is a miracle in her own right. All of our children are. Thomas, who is now 11, was conceived via IVF after we were told that it was impossible for us to have children of our own. Campbell, who is now 9, again IVF. A single frozen embryo transfer that divided into identical twins. Our Benjamin died during that pregnancy but Campbell held on and miraculously survived. I carried them both to 38 weeks and three days, 
and I birthed them both. Birthing one live and one dead baby in the same hour is soul-defining. After losing my father-in-law, Jeff's dad, Murray Joseph, hence Marley's initials MJ Fisher, to melanoma cancer in 2015, we decided that life was too short to wonder anymore. My endometriosis meant that my fertility window was closing. We rolled the dice and decided to defrost our final frozen embryo. The insanity of Marley's story starts when Jeff and I are gowned up at the fertility clinic at the doors to theatre waiting to go in and have our final embryo transferred into my uterus. But this didn't ever happen. It turned out that the fertility clinic had lost and they assumed destroyed our final frozen embryo. They say their best guess is that it ended up in a sharp spin, but to this day, we honestly have no idea where it is. And we live with the fear that we will one day get a call that they have found it, which would be a better outcome than it mistakenly being given to somebody else, but would come with a unique set of challenges, given that I no longer have a uterus. Obviously, we were shattered when the clinic made this admission. But as so many other times in the Fisher family story, when it is in fact stranger than fiction, little did we know that our baby girl was already nestled safely in my uterus as we waited to go into theatre that day. We just didn't know that she was there yet. So after eight and a half years of not actively using contraception because we didn't think that we needed to, here we were, a naturally conceived pregnancy that didn't end in an early miscarriage. I am still to this day absolutely and utterly gobsmacked that she is a part of our world. Her pregnancy was by far my toughest. I suffered from hyperemesis gravidium, which is so tough while managing type 1 diabetes. An induction had been booked in because she was so big, but in the way that is just now so bloody characteristic of her sweet nature, she decided to make her own way into the world right on 37 weeks. I had told so many people that I was having a baby on that Thursday because if I needed a C-section, it would give me the five days that I needed to take Thomas to school on the Tuesday for his first day of kindergarten. After being told that we wouldn't have babies for such a long time, there was nothing short of having a baby hanging out my vagina that was going to stop me from being a part of those first days of school photos, nerves and joy as my littlest big boy started big school. A side note here, to add that I often say with all that she has been through that Marley is well within her rights to be a complete asshole, but she is the opposite. She is the sweetest kid, she's sunshine in human form, and I just have to wonder if she understands how lucky she is to be here and is just soaking in every drop of joy and projecting it into every day and those around her. She was my longest and most difficult birth. My waters broke at home in the morning, lunchtime came and went and so did dinner. And midnight. And finally, just before sunrise the next day, a precious, beautiful baby girl emerged from my body. The first thing that I noticed about her was the beautiful, perfect arch in her top lip. We clung to her so tight and we were so grateful that she was safe. Marley was a dream baby, captivating the attention of all those who met her, with her massive big blue eyes, being endlessly doted on by her big brothers. Our family has never felt so rich with love and so complete. The year of Marley's birth was also the year of Thomas's diabetes diagnosis. This is in addition to a range of neurodivergence that he experiences. 
Ongoing speech, occupational and physical therapy wasn't cutting it and we were looking at further testing. As a part of this, a panel of bloods were added and a HbA1c, which is the average of the last three months of his blood glucose levels, and a fasting blood glucose level were added to the pathology form. This was due to my type 1 diabetes. The next day, we found ourselves in an emergency appointment with a paediatric endocrinology team following Thomas's overnight diabetes diagnosis. Six months later, I found myself having the same conversation in the rooms of our amazing paediatrician. Her breaking the news, highly likely while wearing a fabulous pair of shoes, that Marley also had diabetes. She also requested that we have Campbell tested and had the task of calling me the next day to confirm three out of three. Within six months, at ages 17 months, four years old and six years old, with our two littlest diagnosed 48 hours apart, all three of our children were diagnosed with diabetes. What were the chances? This set off a process of genetic testing. Only two labs in the world were able to do this test, the University of Chicago and Exeter in the UK. We had DNA extractions done in Australia and our samples sent to Exeter, and we waited. It took six months, but we got the call to say that all four of us, me included, revoking my type 1 diabetes diagnosis, had a diagnosis of MODY2, maturity onset diabetes of the young, variation 2, a monogenic autosomal disease characterised by a primary defect in insulin secretions and hyperglycemia. It results from GCK gene mutations that impair enzyme activity. We are yet to find another family in the world that looks like ours. 2018 brought with it the onset of Marley's seizure activity. This was complicated at first because we assumed that it could be from hyperglycemia, blue breath holds, iron deficiency because she was born a little early and didn't get all the iron she needed from my placenta at the end of the pregnancy. Febrile convulsions, maybe. We looked for every possible alternate explanation because what kid has both a seizure disorder and diabetes? As there are no paediatric neurologists in Canberra, in November 2018, I returned to Sydney to see a private neurologist that we have already formed a relationship with as he looks after the pineal cyst on Thomas's brain. The specialist spent 30 minutes with Marley in his consultation rooms and booked her straight into hospital that afternoon, explaining to me that he didn't feel confident putting me in the car with her and driving back to Canberra alone. Within hours, we were hooked up to have an overnight EEG test done to identify any abnormalities in the electrical activity in her brain. The results from this test gave her a diagnosis of epilepsy. We immediately medicated her with anticonvulsants, with promises that once we got through those first few transition months of titrating medication doses, that her mood, her seizures and our lives would settle down. Little did we know this was merely the calm before the storm. By January 2019, her seizures were rapidly increasing. We now know that heat is a massive seizure trigger for her. So we added more anticonvulsant medications to her regime. By April, she had deteriorated so much more and her seizures had started to cluster. Her development had slowed in the few months prior, but now she was starting to lose skills and lose language. In April, I could wait no longer and I finally had my 15th and hopefully final surgery for my endometriosis, a hysterectomy at age 34. This also gave me an additional diagnosis of adenomyosis. In May, 
We called her eight ambulances. Most paramedics called her at a GCS3 on arrival and raced her straight into a resuscitation bay at the hospital. GCS3 is a rating on the global coma scale and it's not the end that you ever want to be on, let alone your child. On the 28th of May 2019, life as we knew it would change forever. On what was expected to be a short-term hospital stay under observation, as Marley had had a tonic-clonic seizure that paramedics terminated with the use of midazolam the night before, Marley deteriorated terrifyingly rapidly. Walking across a room, she suddenly lost her balance and became so ataxic that she started walking into walls and fell headfirst into a cupboard. Her vision was compromised. She began seeing double, only able to focus by closing one eye. Her speech became slurred and her demeanour was frankly like looking after a drunk teenager. It was beyond terrifying. At this point, we begged and pleaded to be transferred to Sydney. What followed was two weeks of daily seizures and a child who could no longer lift a spoon to her mouth. And beyond our comprehension, things went from this bad to being terrifyingly worse. We were running out of options for rescue drugs to bring her out of her back-to-back seizures. Too many late-night met calls on the high-care paediatric ward, and after a lumbar puncture and emergency brain MRI, excluding a rapidly growing brain tumour, Marley needed a rescue medication called phenobarbitone. We knew this was the final straw, as she was no longer able to breathe for herself. Our beautiful baby ballerina was intubated and ventilated. Eleven cannular attempts by the New South Wales emergency transport doctor that was helicoptered to Canberra to transfer Marley to Sydney were unsuccessful, an ephemeral line was placed in her groin. This would serve her well in the days to come, as she had up to seven intravenous anticonvulsants running into those lines, as we watched on helplessly as her little body continued to convulse in that paediatric intensive care bed. Nobody can prepare you for seeing your little girl intubated and ventilated. Watching a machine breathe for her, she looked like a doll, a robotic mannequin, and it was so hard to believe that if she ever did open her eyes, that we would ever see them sparkle again. Only slightly harder than this was saying goodbye to Jeff and driving away from him in that ambulance to go out to the airport where our chopper was waiting to whisk Marley and I away into the night. None of us knew if he would ever see his daughter alive again. After we landed in Sydney, I remember sitting in a cold brown plastic chair while they stabilised her in the paediatric intensive care unit of the Sydney Children's Hospital in Randwick and the head doctor telling me that at the onset of Marley's drunk phase, She had likely suffered a stroke, and that on top of that, she had now been in status epilepticus for more than 48 hours. Given that her assumed stroke hadn't been treated at the time of onset, her presenting deficits were now likely permanent. Marley was booked in for an emergency MRI with contrast the next day, and she would be placed into an induced coma. I was given a key to a little room up the hallway and told to sleep. I was speechless maybe for the first time in my life, and I obeyed. The next six days in that PICU isolation room, we saw hundreds of staff. We had emergency medicine doctors, neurologists, immunologists, and the genetic team all looking after us. The most brilliant and terrifyingly skilled nursing staff. A whole exome sequence was run in five days and it showed us nothing. No one could tell us what was wrong with our precious girl. 
a stroke was ruled out, neuroblastoma was ruled out, a brain tumor was again ruled out, and still the markers on her cerebral spinal fluid showed inflammation and an abnormal level of B cells, swelling on her brain that ravaged her little body with seizure activity and left her unconscious for hours at a time. On day three in PICU, we had a discussion about autoimmune encephalitis, which likely saved her life, and discussed treating her with a huge whack of intravenous steroids to reduce the inflammation on her brain and intravenous immunoglobulin, IVIG as we now call it. The moment they started pumping that IVIG into her body was the moment that Marley and our whole family would start the process of eternal gratitude for Australian plasma donors. We finally started to see some progress, and every infusion that she has had since has been life-preserving. Sometimes she has required three days of IVIG, then a 10-day break, then readmission to hospital for another three days. When Marley was at her sickest, this was her treatment regime for eight months. While she no longer requires the treatment at that frequency, she will forever be dependent on Australian plasma donors, because when she relapses, IVIG is what saves her life. I wish I could say that the initial PICU admission was the worst of the trauma of autoimmune encephalitis for our family, but there have been many, many dark, ugly, terrifying days since. The worst of which came in May last year, just after we were preparing to celebrate the first anniversary of Marley's survival after her autoimmune encephalitis diagnosis. We were hospitalised for a routine IVIG infusion when Marley had a very significant seizure with little warning. I believe that Marley owes her life to the nurse that was looking after her that night, as she knew Marley so well and trusted my instincts to know this was far more than a regular seizure. This was brain inflammation and a relapse. This was building to a status epileptic seizure that had the potential to take our beautiful girl's life. For the purposes of this pod, I will call her Nurse Lola, but she knows who she is and how deeply our family loves and respects her. She will always have a special and unbreakable connection with our little lady. My memories of the hours that followed are all in flashes. Marley falling blissfully asleep in my arms after girly night of movies on the iPad and chocolate. Monitors beeping. Warning a seizure is starting. Marley sleeps with pulse oximetry equipment to monitor her pulse and blood oxygen levels as the majority of her seizures happen when she is sleeping. The left side of Marley's face starts to twitch, then her left hand, then her right hand. I start a stopwatch on my phone. She is completely unresponsive. Her pupils are pinpoint and divergent, both facing outwards. The room is now full of people. The button on the wall had been pushed. They are drawing in midazolam to use as a seizure rescue medication, and I'm expecting that she will quite literally come up swinging within the minute. I'm alert, but not alarmed. We give her up to two lots of midazolam at home before even calling an ambulance these days, because otherwise we would just have to live in a hospital. I'm mindlessly rattling off her full name, date of birth, no medication allergies, and find humour in the fact that I'm not allowed to administer medication in hospital that I give my kid at home all the time. The one that is locked in a special cabinet with multiple sets of keys and all of the signatures. At our house, it's just in the medication box on a shelf in the kitchen and sometimes in the drawer of my bedside table for easy access. They trickle the medaz down her cheek, rub her cheek against her gums to make it absorb as quickly as possible, and we wait for the violent eruption of the little girl hurling abuse at us all. And we wait. And nothing. 
She is still completely unresponsive and her arms are jerking again. I watch Lola check both of her pupils with a torch and get no response. Lola looks at me and we instantly know. In that raise of an eyebrows, she knows that she isn't going to respond to the rescue meds tonight. She's going back in a chopper. She's going back to pick you and her life may be threatened again. In the space of 20 minutes, it's gone from snuggles and movies and chocolate with my little shadow to wondering if this is the night that I will lose her forever. The next thing that I remember is being raced up to the adult ICU in preparation for Marley to be intubated. After arriving at the ICU, demanding to know why she is in an open-air room, she is immunocompromised and she must stay in isolation, only to be told that the isolation rooms are being used by COVID-positive patients. A chopper and a PICU team were being assembled in Sydney and sent to retrieve her, but they are unable to land due to thick fog. Another team is put in an ICU ambulance and drove three hours to Canberra. An on-call paediatric anaesthetist was called in the early hours of the morning to intubate her because we couldn't wait for the team from Sydney to arrive. Once I could see that the emergency team from Sydney was satisfied that she was stable enough for transfer, I just needed a minute. So I did what I do. I asked the team what their coffee orders were. At this point, I hadn't slept for almost 24 hours and I was about to be thrust into a PICU environment in a hospital in a different state which would share no electronic medical records with her current treating hospital. With little more than a page of handover, I would need to become a walking, talking rendition of her medical history, previous medications and test results and the names of all of her consultants until they arrived at her bedside. I needed a minute and I needed some caffeine. The emergency team and I inhaled our coffees as we waited for the second chopper to land, and then we are whisked away to Sydney. My memory of the first day in PICU isn't clear. Due to COVID restrictions, we could only have one person at her bedside, so Jeff and I took turns at spending time with her. She'd been spiking a mild fever on and off, but that wasn't surprising, as it can be a side effect of the anticonvulsant medication she was having. We made the decision for me to sleep at the hotel for the night and Jeff to sit with her, Often this is not possible in PICU, but we were lucky that she was in a space alone due to her immune suppression, so one of us was able to stay. At around 6am, Jeff and I swapped over. We were heartbroken that she had relapsed again, but felt safe that she was in the best hands in PICU and back with her neurology and immunology consultants in Sydney. I'll never forget the feeling of dread I felt as the head of the paediatric intensive care unit pulled over a stool to sit down at Marley's bedside. I actually told him no. I said it was his job to float past and throw some orders in our general direction and go off to be busy and important. As gentle, but as matter-of-factly as he could, he explained that Marley was demonstrating the symptoms of COVID-19. It turned out that what was actually wrong with her is that she had developed septic pneumonia secondary to intubation, but we didn't know that at the time. Marley needed to be put into an isolation room without us. She needed two negative COVID test results before we could see her again. This would take at least 36 hours to get these test results, and she wasn't expected to survive that long. Instead, our four-year-old daughter would likely die surrounded by strangers in head-to-toe protective gear, who were potentially risking their lives in an attempt to save hers. I had 10 minutes to say goodbye to her. My poor husband had to share this time with me via video call and with no context. 
The seconds were just too precious to waste with explanations. I simply called him and said, she's going into COVID isolation and she isn't expected to survive. If there is anything you have not said to her, you need to say it now. Tell her that you love her and say goodbye. And via video call, my husband said goodbye to his intubated, ventilated baby girl who was in an induced coma. I wrote her a letter from her brother's. I made a recording of me reading her a story. If she came out of her coma, she would have been terrified of everyone in their hazmat-style PPE suits in PICU. And if she did die, I wanted her to go listening to my voice, just like a bedtime story. I kissed her baby head, and I told her that I didn't expect her to fight anymore, that she couldn't give me more joy in a long lifetime than she had given me already. I wept as I told her that I would miss her being my little shadow. And I told her when she got to the other side to look for Benjamin, the boy that would look just like her brother, his identical twin Campbell. Benjamin died in utero. He would look after her until I got there. And then she was taken away and I was escorted off the hospital grounds. The next morning... We awoke to a spectacular double rainbow over the beach and we knew in our hearts that Benjamin had come to take his sister. Later, she would tell the story of how she went up into the sky and out of the windows and that when she found the rainbows, the rainbows took me back to my mummy. At the time of recording this podcast, it is over a year since that PICU admission and thankfully, she has only done one PICU stint since. It was deemed that it was not safe for Marley to live somewhere that she did not have a local paediatric intensive care unit, and we have relocated our family to beautiful Queensland, and we are all thriving up here. The boys are settled into a beautiful school. Marley is the most stable she has been since diagnosis, and we've built a great team up here to assist with her rehab. Marley has now been diagnosed with a global developmental delay as a result of her autoimmune encephalitis. This will be a lifelong disability. However, we've got so much great support around her. And while it may not look like the lives of other five-year-olds who are at school playing sports and going to birthday parties, she is living her best life and she is loving it. I would like to invite Marley's dad and my wonderful husband, Jeff, to join us at this point because the focus of this podcast is telling the amazing stories of what recipients are able to achieve in their lives after receiving blood products. And for our daughter, that is so much more than just being alive. To close us out today, I'm very excited to introduce my lovely husband and Marley's dad, Jeff. Welcome to the Milkshakes for Marley podcast. Thank you for having me. Let's start off by asking, how are you? When we decided to have a family, did it ever enter your mind that we might be raising a family of children with additional needs? Uh, right now, I'm doing fairly well. It's been the last few years have been a bit of a roller coaster. Um, but no, I think I'm in a fa- we're all in a fairly good space at the moment. Um, yeah, deciding to have a family, I don't think it ever really crossed my mind. I don't think it crosses many people's minds. Um, that having a fa- you know children with additional needs, I think it kind of you think at some point it might happen, but I think you often go into that mode of that will be somebody else. So yeah, no, we never really took it that seriously. I don't think. 
I think lots of people probably think that. Um, obviously, we now have a child that relies on blood product to preserve her life. And we've learned a lot about what plasma can do for people with autoimmune conditions. Um, you were a blood donor before Marley got sick. But what did you assume it was used for? Well, I think you assume it's, it's used in um, yeah hospital scenarios for people who need um, yeah assistance for blood or need different products during um yeah they're various surgeries or procedures but i think a lot of it too is i think in your mind as well whenever you hear these calls for blood donations it's during you know um you know the when the tsunamis or earthquakes or natural disasters so i think you're kind of in your, and you see those images and that's i think what you so often associate it with so mm -hmm. um yeah prob probably that um yeah sort of that last minute not like not definitely not something really planned mm. i think is probably the best way to put it yeah we didn't realize i was very much the same you assume that it's accidents um or surgery or things like that you don't think about it as being something that preserves life and improves people's quality of life it's more about saving people's lives ridiculous question but how does it feel to have an immunocompromised child in the middle of a global health pandemic i'd say it's very scary um i think it's scary under normal circumstances i mean normal circumstances especially come winter i mean you think especially with a child that when they go to childcare, there's all the common things that you know pick up like the, the tonsillitis or having a cold but mm. sort of that thing knowing that once our child does get it it's probably going to have it much worse so add on top of that covid which at the you know especially at the time we're still understanding about it as well so that makes it a very scary situation mm. You see the terror of people when COVID is close to home for them. Um, and I think it's been a real wake up call for our friends and family and the people that love us um, to realise that this is our reality that we live every day, is the fear that people are living with in the middle of this global health pandemic. And how scary is it when you hear about shortages in the blood supply due to donations being reduced with COVID lockdowns or post-vaccination? just people not being able to attend appointments at the moment with health concerns. How scary is that for you? I think it's very scary. There's people who, you know, were regularly having appointments for it and due to lockdowns, maybe second guessing going. What's also scary as well is that it's, you know, because it's, you know, potentially something that, you know, she needs to live. Mm. In an equivalent at a, at a time could be similar to a, um, a person in a space shuttle in outer space and mm. oh look hang on we're running out of oxygen yeah absolutely. and we'll just try and see if we can find some more but that, that's yep. the sort of thing it's that sort of yeah you you need, need that to live and you're being told that you know that one thing is that's keeping you alive is suddenly in the short supply and we we don't know what's going to happen yeah it's a very scary scenario to be in mm. yeah and i think yeah that's the absolute reality of the way that we live now to change it up a little bit and have a bit of fun, how would you describe Marley? She's a very happy, loving uh, little girl. She's, um, despite everything she's gone through, she loves life, just loves everybody, doesn't really have a bad bone in her body, mm. um, but at the same time, incredibly, um, incredibly brave and incredibly strong-willed. And um, I think you touched on earlier that it just she's not... If, if you met her you would you know she has every reason to you know have something against the world or been treated haven't you know been dealt such a terrible hand but it's just not at all she's mm. just embracing and loving life 
and yeah, no, it's a very infectious um, feeling that she gives to everybody too. So no, she's uh, pretty amazing. Yeah, she's a phenomenal little person. I'm so grateful that we've got her in our world. Um, what are your favourite things that she's been able to achieve since starting IVIG? So since starting her plasma infusion and when do you know that she's due for another infusion? I think some of my favourite things just starting IVIG is that she's now, especially when she was, you know, going significantly downhill and we didn't know why. And then when we found this treatment that was working, I think it was such a relief, but also then she got back to sort of seeing the little girl that, that we had before mm-hmm. and she could, you know, couldn't completely go back to everything she was doing before, but it, it was sort of, um, you know, being able to come back home and, and not being able to be so reliant on, on being, you know, in hospital and monitored. Um, and yeah, that we could, yeah, bring it back home and be around her brothers and be back in, you know, her room and her toys. And it was, um, rather than being in somebody else's space under somebody else's sort of supervision. And that mm-hmm. was, that was, yeah, really great to have her back in that sort of that home environment that she really loved. Yeah. And how do you know when she's due for another infusion? Essentially, we see her, you know, right after she's had the infusion, she just comes out 100 miles an hour. Like, it's just mm. full, every emotion's 110%. And it's, you know, great for sort of the first week. And then when you sort of see she's, you know, doesn't have the same levels of energy, she's getting mm. tired. Um, and, yeah, it's sort of a very, yeah, very gradual slow down of, of everything from the start so that's essentially when we know she's yeah due for more mm. she just doesn't have the energy that she had before what do you think the positive impacts of having a chronically ill child have been for our family i'd say making the most of every day mm. it's been the big change and you know stuff that you took for granted before um you now yeah really i think yeah start to appreciate the small things and being together uh, a big part, especially with, you know, COVID and, and the lockdown, something that we've really probably embraced was that I think a lot of the time right before um, COVID really hit Australia, or the world for that matter, was that we spent a lot of time separated as a family. Yeah. So now when lockdowns come and we're told you have to stay together, like for us, it's like, that's mm. amazing. That's, you know, um, <laughs> it's a really thing we really embrace. And we, I think since we've got home from hospital, you know, from all the the long stay she had we spent a lot of time together so this really isn't much of an extension of what we had before and we get to sort of mm. um hang out together all the time which was just something that was in such short supply for such you know a long period of time yeah, so um we really enjoy each other's company mm. um we all get along and yeah that's one of the yeah, i think the beauties that's come out of the whole mm. scenario we've got a pretty amazing little family and just to clarify what some of that means too um as Canberra has no paediatric intensive care unit, Marley was airlifted to Sydney and spent months at a time hospitalised in Sydney. And that would mean that Jeff and our other children were in Canberra and we were in Sydney and we'd only see each other on the weekends. So we had weeks and months at a time where we were all separated and it was pretty awful. What would you like to say to Australian plasma donors? Just a massive thank you um, for keeping our daughter alive, essentially, where if it wasn't for them, there's yeah it's hard to you know hard to see where she would be and it's one of those few treatments that you can't money can't buy and you're relying on the generosity of other australians mm-hmm. so no we're more than grateful because it's um something that yeah we definitely couldn't have done by ourselves yeah thank you thank you for joining us on the podcast
Nothing feels more Australian like the modern demonstration of mateship than donating blood or breast milk and this product being used to keep another Australian alive. Our daughter is alive today because of this incredible selfless gift and I would love to create a space for others to tell their story and to give thanks. This podcast is written and presented by me, Kate Fisher, with today's special guest, my lovely husband and Marley's dad, Jeff Fisher, who also did the audio production for this episode. Our next guest is Julian, an ex-Australian army soldier who shares an extraordinarily similar condition to Marley. He experiences many of the same symptoms and they have had the same treatments be successful for them. Not only has he given me an incredible insight into what it is like for Marley to have a seizure, but he also has some incredibly unlikely parallels to the life of our family and it's hard to believe that our paths weren't meant to cross. Tune into the next episode to hear more about how Marley's seizure response service dog Patty has changed her life and how Marley and Julian have both found dogs to be essential members of their rehabilitation teams for both their physical and mental health. To make an appointment to donate plasma and other blood products in Australia, please go to www.lifeblood.com.au and we would love it if you could add your donation to the Milkshakes for Marley Lifeblood Team Tally. Thank you for joining us for our first episode of the Milkshakes for Marley podcast. Thank you for my prize, Mom.